0: Book of Romans chapter 5. Book of Romans chapter 5. As so we come this morning to uh, verses 3 through 5, that will be our focus. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Uh, Romans, just such a treasure chest for us uh, in the Word of God, such a, an incredible gift. From our God to us to help us understand Him and us and salvation in this world that we live in. And uh, we are now in our verse by verse study of Romans in chapter 5. Last Sunday morning, we looked at verse 1. Uh, last Sunday night, we looked at verse 2. This morning, we're going to tackle the rest of this paragraph, verses 3. Through five, but the, let's read the paragraph again. So Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read these first five verses. So Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. More than that, Paul says, he has been unpacking for us the blessings that come to Christians the very moment they first believe and continue into eternity whether that person is 8 years old or 88 years old, whether that person is wealthy or impoverished, whether that person is male or female, black or white, whoever that person is, the moment they run to Jesus Christ in their hearts, these things described in these verses become a reality for them. And these are awesome, glorious realities. Verse 1, by believing on Jesus, we have peace with God. Our sin no longer stands between us and God. He, He no longer looks upon us with His righteous wrath and anger. Christ has fully borne all of His righteous anger at the cross He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. There is now peace between us and God. We are no longer enemies. We are friends. Verse 2, the first part of the verse. By believing on Jesus, we have access into the grace of God. Not only are we at peace with God, but His merciful favor is is upon us. We are now His children. He is now our Father. Every single second of every single day, we live in His goodness and His mercy being expressed towards us, following us, protecting us, upholding us, working all for our eternal good. We live in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We have the awesome joy of being able to commune with God through His Word, through prayer. We live in His grace. And yet that's not all. The second part of verse 2. By believing on Jesus, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is a wondrous gift that we've been given. There is coming a day when we will behold God in all His glory and we will see His face and we will even share in His glory, the glory of His holy character. We will behold the glory of God and to an extent we will participate in the glory of God. That day is coming for us, brothers and sisters. We don't deserve it. It's a gift of grace but we are looking forward to that day when we will behold God, when we will live in the fullness of His glory. And it is that that is our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. It's our eager expectation. Remember, the word hope in the Bible doesn't mean I hope this, I hope that, and it may or may not come true. No, no, no. In the Bible, the word hope means something that has been guaranteed to us by God and it's coming and we're waiting for it with eager expectation. And so Christians, by believing on Jesus, now live in this eager expectation of what's ahead for us, what's what's coming to us, and that hope brings us joy now. We can rejoice now because of the hope that we have, because of the day that is coming. And now, as we come to verses 4 and 5, verse 3, I'm sorry, we find Paul saying, more than that, He's not done yet. There's there's more to be said. As he spoke of the hope of the glory of God, another blessing came to his mind. Uh, Another glorious reality of of being a Christian came into his mind. Namely, that by believing on Jesus, Christians have joy even in the face of their sufferings. Even in the midst of their hardships. Hardships. This is the main point of these verses. Christians have joy even in their sufferings. That's a glorious gift. But why? Because this hope of beholding God's glory and participating in God's glory grows and increases as we suffer well. Hope welling up in our hearts that one day we will be with God brings us great joy now. And what causes more of this hope to be nurtured in our hearts? What causes this hope that is the source of our joy to grow? What causes this hope in our souls to be manufactured and, and more greatly produced in our souls? Suffering. Suffering. What a strange thing. God uses suffering to increase the hope and therefore the joy of His people. How does that work? How does that make sense? How do painful trials, painful tribulations cause us to have even greater hope? Thankfully, Paul... He lays out the whole process. He he presents to us a a chain, a progression. Each thing leads to the next. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. That's the chain that Paul gives us. So there's three steps in the progression. Let's take them one at a time. Step one, suffering produces hope. Endurance. First, let me tell you that the word Paul is using here when it comes to talking about suffering is not a word that refers to small suffering. The word translated here as sufferings is not a word that refers to light sufferings. It is a word that refers to genuinely difficult, painful suffering. This is the kind of suffering that most people would say, there's no way you can rejoice in the face of that. It hurts badly. The kind of sufferings that Paul has in mind, he explains more clearly in Romans 8. So if you want to turn a couple pages over, you can look at Romans 8. Look at verse 35, and he he gives us a list in verse 35 of, of the kind of sufferings... He has in mind, Romans 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword. Right? Look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed All the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. When Paul is talking about suffering in Romans 5, he's not just talking about a little bit of hardship. He's talking about being stoned the way he was. He's talking about being beaten with rods. Being slandered and hated by people that you care for. He's talking about being shunned by your own family, the way many of these Roman Christians had been shunned. He's talking about physical pain. He's talking about emotional pain. He's talking about poverty. He's talking about threats of violence. Remember, he's writing to Christians in the city of Rome. This is the 50s AD. Nero is in power in Rome. Paul is likely going to have his head removed from his body by Nero in the city of Rome around a decade after he writes this. So he's talking about serious suffering here. Historians tell us that Nero would take Christians and sew them up in the skins of wild animals and then throw them to wild dogs until the dogs had torn them into pieces. All of this before... A crowd celebrating the death. Nero would dress Christians in shirts made with stiff wax and then he would set them on fire as torches to light up his garden parties. The first true wave of Christian persecution was less than ten years after Paul wrote these words. Already, Roman Christians in particular and Christians all over the empire were experiencing real hardship, quite frankly, hardship more severe than most of us would even consider to be a prospect in our lives here in America. And yet over and over again, in the book of Acts, for example, we see Christians being beaten, we see Christians being imprisoned, and yet they respond with joy. Paul and Silas in prison, shackled, singing praises to God. Why? Why was suffering a joy to them? Well, Paul says here, suffering produces endurance. Endurance. The word used here is is used of a soldier who in the midst of a tough battle continues to fight even though he's still receiving blows himself. He's being hit with fists or hit with arrows or hit with a sword, but he continues to fight. He will not stop fighting until he has the victory. The endurance that Christians must have is the endurance of faith. We must continue to submit to Christ, to trust Christ, to follow Christ, even when it hurts. Even when it's hard, even when it costs us dearly. The endurance of faith, over and over again, the Scriptures say, it is He who endures to the end who will be saved. How do you know if a piece of gold is real? How do you know that this golden nugget you have is the genuine thing? Well, one way is to put it to test through fire the dross will burn away and you will soon know whether you have true gold or not. Similarly, how can I know whether my faith in Christ is real? How can I know whether my faith in Christ is is the true God-given saving faith that puts me at peace with God, that gives me access into His grace, that gives me grounds for the hope that's in my life? I do not want to stand before God on the last day and find out that I'm a counterfeit. I do not want to stand before God on the last day and find out that I'm not the genuine article, that my faith is not real. How can I know that my faith is the real thing? Answer, you test it. And that's what God graciously does for us through trials. Sufferings are God's way of testing faith. And if our faith is real, God given faith, then even in the midst of difficult hardships, we will hold fast to Christ and we will continue trying to follow him, giving him glory, seeking to be obedient to him with every fiber in our beings. And yet, what Paul is saying here is that there's even more to it than that, because suffering not only tests our endurance, He says suffering actually helps produce endurance. If the seeds of true faith have been planted in your heart, then suffering, believe it or not, is one of the means of grace that God uses to cause your faith to grow. And you know this to be true if you think about it. Because when you have trusted Christ through a hard time, and you get to the other side of that trial, and you see how faithful He has been to you, won't you be even more eager to trust Him when the next valley comes? Doesn't trusting Christ through trials and proving Himself faithful actually strengthen your faith, give you more endurance, so that maybe if the next trial is a little more difficult, you will still hold on because you remember how He brought you through the last trial. Suffering produces endurance. We become more stable. We have greater security and peace in our hearts because we can look back and say, I went through that and it was tough, but my Savior was with me. My Savior brought me through that. He kept my heart trusting Him even when my heart was wanting to run away from Him. And therefore, Because I've seen how gracious He was to me, I have good reason to believe that I am His and He is mine, and one day I will behold His glory. My hope is growing, you see. And because my hope is growing, my joy is growing. God uses suffering when we suffer well. When we hold fast to Christ through the suffering, God uses suffering to strengthen our faith, to increase our faith, to give us endurance. Suffering, church, is a real gift from God. That's why Christians can rejoice in it. Can you thank God for your suffering? Can you praise God for the trials that He has brought into your life? Christ has borne the greatest suffering. Our suffering is just a little chip off of His cross. As great as our pain may be, it does not compare to what Christ went through at Calvary, what He bore for us there. God has spared you real wrath. What you are experiencing in your hardship is not wrath, it's fatherly love. He's healing us. He's the physician of our souls. The remedy may sting, but He is healing us. It isn't like this for unbelievers. Sufferings do not produce endurance in unbelievers because if you don't have faith to begin with, you can't strengthen the faith. Faith that you don't have can't be made to endure. And so when unbelievers suffer, it is still in a sense a gift from God because it's a wake-up call. You're not as strong as you think you are. Turn to me. You're not as mighty as you think you are. You are not God. Look to me. But if those unbelievers do not turn, ultimately that suffering will have been an expression of the wrath of God against them for their sin, a foretaste of hell itself. But never for Christians. The suffering we experience is never an expression of the wrath of God. Christ bore the wrath of God fully for us on the cross. There is no more wrath. Any suffering you experience is the love of God for your good. And thus, even as you cry through tears of pain, you can sing. You can say with Job, though he slay me. I will praise him still. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord giveth. The Lord taketh away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. we got to speed up. Step two, endurance produces character. Endurance produces character. You see that in verse four? We're just following Paul's progression. The links in the chain. What is this character that is produced in us as we endure in faith? Through suffering. Uh, this is a very difficult word to translate. Uh, most translations now use the word character, but to be honest, as far as we can tell, Paul made up this word. This word never appears anywhere in history before Paul uses it, and yet Paul uses it seven times. He liked the word. The idea seems to be that of someone who has been tested and approved. That is, this person with character, he's not a rookie. He's a veteran. This is someone who has been through the fire, and therefore they are more established. This is someone who now has good reason to believe that he's the genuine article. Isn't it interesting that often the most loving, humble, and wisest of believers are those who have had the hardest lives? They've walked with God through incredible difficulty and He has been faithful to them. He's kept them this far and because He's kept them this far through so much trouble, they are now longing for the day when they will go to be with Him forever. Through each and every trial, He was weaning their hearts off of this world. He was increasing in them a longing for the world to come. Mature believers longing for Christ like never before. They say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die. That's not loss. That's gain. That's the kind of character that is produced in us as we trust in Him through trials. As we endure through various trials, as endurance is produced in us through trials, a character is developed that loves Christ more, longs for Christ more so ready for His return. Your your heart's now disillusioned with this world. I used to think this world was wonderful, and certainly in some ways it is, but in some ways I know it's a shadow of something far better. When is the better coming? I want it to come soon. Is that your heart, dear Christian? Is that where you are? If you're not there, could it be that you haven't suffered much? And do you dare to go to God and pray for suffering? <laughs> do you dare risk <coughs> that kind of prayer? I don't know. I'll let you decide whether you risk that. Step three character produces hope. So God brings trials into our lives. And if we're truly His, we endure. Sometimes with great difficulty, sometimes by the skin of our teeth, but we endure and we continue to submit to Christ and we continue to love Him through a hardship. And that, excuse me, <clears throat> that endurance, that fighting the good fight, that running the race for the prize produces in us a character that gives us good grounds for the hope, yes. I've been through so much and Christ has been so faithful to me, I have now full assurance in my heart I will one day stand in the presence of God. I will one day see His face. That character produces hope. That character causes hope to well up in my soul. And we rejoice in it. Thus, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the future day that's coming, But we rejoice in the trials that come on Monday because we know that even those are going to increase our love for Christ and our longing for Christ. And so we rejoice in cancer. We rejoice even through tears at the loss of a loved one. We rejoice in a lost job. We rejoice in a difficult financial situation. We don't rejoice in the pain itself. We don't rejoice in the circumstance itself. We rejoice in what we know God is doing through the circumstance. We rejoice in what we know God is doing through the trial. And this joy is not a superficial, whimsical, giddy joy. I lost my job. Not that. It is a deep-seated, stabilizing joy in your heart that keeps you holding on as an anchor in the storm so that even as you hurt that hurt is somewhat alleviated by the confidence you have in the goodness of Jesus Christ towards you all right nod your head if all that makes sense do you see Paul's progression does it does it click do you see why we can rejoice in suffering okay but what if it isn't true what if it isn't true what if we endure these trials and we place all our hope in Christ and we follow Christ in the midst of these trials, we continue to bless Christ in the midst of these trials, and then we show up on the last day and we find out we were wrong. It was all a joke or a misreading of the Bible. We, we, we got it wrong. The world looks at people who live this way and they laugh at them. How foolish! How foolish! Remember Job's wife? Why don't you just curse God and die? Stop this still praising Him in the midst of pain. Look at what He's doing to you. Curse Him and die. The world laughs at us because we don't go to certain movies. We don't listen to certain music. We hold to to strange principles. In their eyes, we waste so many hours of our lives away at these church gatherings. They see a man suffering through cancer, and, and he refuses to curse God. They, they see a woman whose child has been taken from her, and she's still declaring her allegiance to Jesus. And they think, what is wrong with these people? The spirit of our world, it, it reminds me back when the, uh, the Indonesian tsunami took place and. There was that article, I believe it was the Slate.com article, in which, in which the, the writer said, uh, if we think God was responsible for the tsunami, then we should gather together and fire him from his position. Right? If God treats us this way, we should rebel against him. We should hate him, not love him. there's the possibility of shame today as the world looks at us and our hope and laughs at us. That day you're longing for is not coming. You keep saying Jesus is going to return, He's going to make all things right, you're going to behold the glory of God. It's a lie. It's been 2,000 years. How long do you need to wake up and see it's just a myth? Give up the game, curse God, pursue your pleasures. And there's the possibility of shame in the future. We show up on the last day and we find out that the Muslims had it right all along. Or some other group. Is that a real possibility? Paul says it is not a real possibility. He says in verse 5, Our hope does not put us to shame. Why? How do we know? How do we know that these things that we're talking about are certain? How do we know that that day is coming? How can I know that this hope that I have in my heart of beholding the glory of God, how do I know that that's real? It's legitimate. It's rock solid. How can I know? And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here we have the coming together of objective truth with subjective feelings. God's love has been shown to us objectively in Christ. He came, He lived, He died, He rose, He reigns, He's coming again. Objective realities. And God is loving us through those realities. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But then there's the subjective side. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. As we hear those objective truths, our eyes are open to see them. We are given the ability to believe them. And in that moment, and every time we hear the gospel afterwards, our hearts become full with the love of God as we think about the gospel. Here's the great difference Between the one who hears the gospel and believes and the one who hears the gospel and does not believe, the difference is the Holy Spirit of God. As one hears the gospel, it's the same old message he's heard before. It strikes him as boring, it strikes him as foolish, it strikes him as unbelievable. But another person hears the gospel. And as he hears it, the Holy Spirit brings into that person's soul the reality of the love of God. So that when that person hears of Christ dying on the cross, his heart breaks. And before he knows it, his heart is swelling with the realization, I am loved by God. Verses 6, 7, and 8. 7 and 8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ultimately, church, ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit that testifies to our hearts that these things are true. This is so mysterious, so hard to explain. The world doesn't like this. The world wants some kind of scientific proof that the Bible is the Word of God. They want some kind of objective, undeniable evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. They they want an indisputable sign that Jesus is returning. God has given us quite a lot of objective reality, objective truth, but real, listen carefully, real assurance of salvation, real confidence that I am Christ and He is mine, Real certainty concerning the truth that God loves me and is bringing me to a glorious day. There is only one way that that comes to our souls. And it is through the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit uses the means of grace, preaching, teaching, Bible reading, singing, praying, Christian fellowship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and yes, even great suffering. The Holy Spirit uses these to bring into our hearts a real and abiding sense of the love of God. And this internal witness of the Holy Spirit is the greatest witness of all. Do you have it? As you hear the Gospel, what happens in your heart? Is it dull to you? Or does your heart warm and say, I can't believe He loves me so much. I can't believe that these things are true. That my God would give His Son for my sake. It is there that we find that we are loved. And as the Spirit does His work in our soul, that internal witness, that's where our assurance lies. What does all this have to do with justification by faith? That's Paul's overarching theme. And the answer is obvious. None of these great blessings would be ours had Jesus not died for us, lived for us. None of these things would be ours if we were not made right with God. All of these blessings I've been describing, including having joy in suffering, are only ours if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole flow of the text is that through suffering we grow as Christians and have even greater reason for the hope that one day we will be with God. But if we are not justified by faith, if we are still an unbeliever, we don't want to behold God's glory. If we're not right with God through Jesus Christ, if we're still counted as criminals in God's sight, we don't have a hope in our souls that one day I'm going to be with God. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden. Here comes God. Run! Hope and the joy it produces only makes sense for people who have God as their friend and their father, not their enemy. And so it all comes down whether or not we have believed and are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we resting in Him? Is He the hope of our souls? Is He the one in whom we trust? Maybe you've heard people say Christians are too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. You ever heard somebody say that? Christians are too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. The idea is that Christians are so focused on that great day to come that they're not of any use here today. Can I just say that that's rubbish? Can I just say that's, that's just pure garbage? Quite frankly, more often than not, Christians are so earthly focused they're no heavenly good, especially in our culture. We're so wrapped up in the stuff of this world. Our mind's not on the day to come. Our, our mind's focused on whatever the latest thing is and whatever's gripped our heart at the moment, whether it's Shopping or football or an issue at work or whatever it is. We just, this, this idea of living with this hope is almost practically absent from the lives of so many in our day. But Paul seems to be saying here that one of the greatest gifts we have in Christ is the gift of being so heavenly minded that we are of earthly good. Because it is by being heavenly minded and knowing that that day is coming that we have joy in our souls to persevere through suffering and therefore to be a blessing and a witness to all those Around us. The hope that we have of being with God forever affects us so that even the hardships of this life can be faced with joy. Dear friends, is this you? Have you believed on Christ? If so, do you see this great hope that you have in Him? Are you longing for that glorious day that is ahead of you when you will be with God in the fullness of His glory? Is that a prominent theme in your life? Prominent theme in your life? Does your spouse know how you long for that day? Do your children know how you long for that day? Is this an active hope that characterizes your life? It affects the decisions you make? Or is this hope just an afterthought, like the the last page of the book of your life? Because you fail to realize that that's actually going to be right. All of this is just preface, folks. (laughs) Chapter 1 begins then. It's not just an afterthought. It's the theme. If you are thinking in a worldly way, then you think little of heaven. You see it as the last paragraph of the last page of the book of your life. Is being with God forever an afterthought to you? Or is it the greatest gift you can imagine? Is it the one you have received in Christ? Is it the one that gets you up in the morning and gives you the strength to endure whatever Monday brings? The nearer we draw to death, The more this hope should be abounding in us. What is it that will help you face death with confidence and joy if it is not the hope that immediately after you take that last breath, you will enter into glory? Do you know what it is to have these things? Do you know what it is to live in them? Run to Christ, rest in Christ, live in Christ. Submit to Christ. Peace with God. Access into grace. Joy in the hope of the glory of God. Joy in the midst of sufferings. What more must I say to persuade you to turn to Christ? I pray that we will all rest in Him. Let's pray.